and welcome to Diaspora Conversations. It is my hope that you have been keeping safe. Between COVID and Black Lives Matter, I took a break to process things. As people of African descent, this has been quite the year, especially here in the US. We are still asking for our rights, even though slavery and colonization ended years ago. And I've been thinking, how do we end this? What can we do to show the rest of the world that enough is enough? I am a community organizer, and one thing I know is that there is strength in unity, and powers that be do pay attention to a unified people. That is why I have a greater zeal for this podcast, because in my own small way, I am working towards uniting people of African descent by showcasing that our stories and cultures are very similar than different. That is why I was so excited to land my next guest. His name is Talib Sabo. Talib is a lawyer, a poet, and a filmmaker based in the DC Maryland area, also known as the DMV Metro. He is the co-chair of the Social Justice Committee of the Washington Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division and the managing director for the Movement for Black Power, a DC-based organization dedicated to the establishment of justice, liberation, and power for black people in America and abroad. As you will hear in the interview, Talib staunchly identifies as a Pan-Africanist. He believes that regardless of how we left Africa, either through the slave trade or voluntary immigration, we should simply identify as Africans in diaspora, regardless of what country we are in. This is what drew me to him, and I made every possible connection to get him on the podcast. I cannot wait for you all to hear his story and his journey of embracing Pan-Africanism. Although we do talk about his life growing up, I was so intrigued by his stance that that is what we began with. Welcome and thank you. One thing that I liked about you researching is that you identify as a pan-Africanist. Yes. You're big in the African diaspora. And I want to talk about that because for the purpose of our viewers to know who you are, you're African-American by definition of what people define this. But I know you do not like to identify as that. I know that. You do not like to identify as that. But we're trying to... (laughs) And so, and I'm African. For the purposes of this interview, <laughs> um, so what sparked, what, like, what helped you broaden your identity? Excellent question. Yeah. Um, I would say honestly, this has been just a sojourn for me mm-hmm. for so long. But if I had to pinpoint one particular time, it would have been 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather was terminally ill. And I remember having a conversation with him because while everybody wanted to get law ter- uh, internships on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. in North Carolina Central, um, I was presented the opportunity not only to have an internship on Capitol Hill, but also go to South Africa for my intern mm-hmm. uh, internship and then also take classes. Mm-hmm. So I knew I'd never been out the country before, uh, and then it was Africa. So I'm like, all right. So I thought, okay, well, this is something that I want to take up. But I remember talking to my grandfather, and this is the last conversation uh, we had while he was here, physically. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was telling him, you know, I have an opportunity to go to South Africa, and then uh, I also have an opportunity to go to Capitol Hill, but I don't know which one to take. Mm -hmm. The way his face lit up when I said South Africa, I'm like, okay, I knew exactly what the... (laughs) With the um, decision was exactly so, uh, and then you know he later transitioned. So when I got to South Africa, I remember my lactation prior to me going telling me, you know, you need to take a a camera and you know just document and whatever. And I'm like, okay. So I took a camera. I met three influential people who kind of catapulted me into this, Mm -hmm. like Luther, uh, Alexia, and uh, Farai or Michael Caldwell. And I remember this is the first time being in a space where they were so black <laughs> and so Pan-African, mm-hmm. you know, because I had an idea of what Pan-Africanism was at the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about Marcus Garvey. I didn't know anything about uh, Jomo Kenyatta or anything about Kwame Nkrumah, any yeah. of those. So, uh, but my man Ferrari was on it. So in class, while we were out there in South Africa, they were going hard in the paint about, you know, how they want to 
protect the rights of black folks and you know uh, really uh, uh, connect people who are from Af of African descent this mm -hmm. type of thing so I'm like huh and then I, I felt like I didn't know enough so as I was traversing through the country mm -hmm. you know we were in Cape Town based in Cape Town at that time I was talking to the continental Africans that were there and I realized that their story was very similar mm -hmm. to ours here in mm -hmm. the United States so I'm like huh this is interesting so when I returned that whole that whole uh, second second year, mm -hmm. I was like a man on fire. <laughs> I was studying. I was reading the Blueprint of Black Power by Amos Wilson. I was reading, um, uh, God, I think it was Capitalism and something by Kwame Nkrumah. Mm -hmm. I was on. I, I didn't watch TV. What I did was after I studied for my uh, classes, mm -hmm. I would literally go to YouTube and just watch scholars, you know, watch scholars do debates, Dr. John Henry Clark, watch Malcolm X speeches and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a sense of, hmm, you know, this is, this is, sounds like information I didn't know before. Yeah. And, uh, but it resonated with me. So that really kind of sparked my whole passion to really know exactly who I am, mm -hmm. where I come from, because we as African people here in the United States, that history was stripped from us. Yeah. And we don't have a immediate understanding or lineage of where we come from. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that we come from, we're descendants of African people, but we don't know specifically, you know, where we are. Yeah. Now, there's an exception, because I did just find out exactly You did. Part. Yeah, <laughs> down to the ethnic group. But, um... That's you know, amazing. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm having a reveal <laughs> later on, so... Okay. <laughs> but, uh, essentially, that's what, ha that's what helped me to come to this position that I am now. Okay. Of being unapologetically Pan-Africanist. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's, that's amazing. Now, um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build bridges yes. between... Again, for the purpose of our interview, Understood. Africans and African Americans, uh. Uh, or whatever African diaspora is, right? Because mm. whatever new lands that the Africans went to, in um, there's been a disconnect, mm -hmm. um, and they've adopted the culture of that place. Mm -hmm. um, and so, when we meet together, it can be um, there's a there can be tension, right? Because yes. we don't understand each other anymore right now. Yes. I mean, the only thing that that we physically see is uh, uh, we share the same skin color. Right. Um, but then, if we dig deeper into the cultures that we we have now, there are a ton of similarities, but we don't know them because we don't even interact as much. Exactly. And I'll give you a good example. Mm -hmm. um, and this this was my introduction to my relationship with African Americans when I came to the U.S. Okay. So my English class, we were being paired with someone to do a time-long project okay. um, and I was paired with this African-American guy and I don't remember his name unfortunately because that's what happened <laughs> he made me forget his name and it wasn't three minutes in he raised his hand and told the teacher I cannot work with her she has an accent you know and I was so heartbroken because to me, he had an accent too, you know, and I was making the effort to work with him. Um, and so the teacher did not make a big deal out of it, paired me with another Caucasian guy, um, and we went on to get an A in class. Um, and I remember that A meant so much to me because I was proving to him, like, you thought I was dumb, right? That, to me, that's how I felt. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, I think it took me a while to trust black guys right. after that. Because I was young, I was like 19 years old. And coming from Kenya to here, in my mind, I thought the people I'd be most friends with would be black people because they look like me. So that introduction kind of like squashed things for me. And it took me a while to actually start being friends with African Americans because they felt like. It, it, it that when I was trying to talk to them, there was tension, uh, or they, they were not as inviting as I was trying, you know, I'm social. I tried like, hey, you know, and you know, they would just be quiet, or if they will talk to me, it would be very matter-of-fact. Mm. Um, so, like, I stopped trying. So, that was my introduction. And I think a lot of what I've had from a lot of Africans, 
those who try, I know that people who just don't try, mm -hmm. but those who try, they're met with similar right. uh, reactions. Mm -hmm. And so part of this conversation that I'm only not only branching out to other Africans who are in the US and what their journey has been, so tell me what, like, what I asked them is tell me how have you been in, able to interact with African Americans? I'm also trying to get to African Americans. Let's have this conversation because I really, really want other Africans who might be able to come here to know how to like transverse that terrain. It's so sad because that story is so prevalent and mm -hmm. ubiquitous within the society. And one of the things I always emphasize is the fact that we don't control the narrative yeah so you have to start there a lot of a lot of times you know we don't understand well one we don't understand racism and white supremacy and how it works how it's not just local but it's global mm -hmm. but also we don't understand how colonization is and which is a byproduct of it so you don't necessarily have to be on the continent you don't have to be in um nairobi to be colonized you don't have to be in mombasa to be colonized mm -hmm. you can literally be colonized on 14th street that's and you can be colonized there on mlk mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so that's what the that's what the mentality is and oftentimes us as african people born here in the states what happens is when we when we grow up mm -hmm. anything that is black that is black is bad Okay. You look at angel food cake and compare it to devil's food cake. It's black. When you look at um, black bald, black male, mm -hmm. it already is in the lexicon that black is bad. Yeah. So we internalize this hate. And when we're taught that there's nothing positive that comes from Africa, yeah. then we want to disassociate ourselves from it. Okay. So it's like, okay, well, if you call me an African or if you say that, you know, I'm I'm dark skin, very dark, then you saying that somehow I'm a excuse the term, but they used to when I grew up the term was used you don't wanna be a or you look like an African booty scratcher or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll hear those derogatory terms, mm -hmm. you know, or when your hair is in a bush or, you know, it's not permed and laid down, all that stuff, then somehow it's unkept. Something's wrong with you. Know, you. Something's yeah. wrong with it. So it's like we live in a society that permeates and predominates whiteness over blackness mm -hmm. no matter where we are, so we internalize it. So when we encounter our continental brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. most times you're dealing with people who are ignorant in the, in the truest sense of the word, mm -hmm. and that's being um, lacking knowledge, mm -hmm. you know? So I always apologize to my brothers and sisters that come here that experience that because it's like, that's not a microcosm of how all of us are. Mm -hmm. There's 40 million of us here, mm -hmm. you know, and we all aren't from that particular cut. But at the same time, I had an experience, which you may know, <laughs> that, that when I um, when I traveled, mm -hmm. and I'll use a different one, since you were probably the one I didn't use earlier. You, it's so, fine. It okay. So I, I'll talk about two experiences that I had. Now, okay. typically when mm -hmm. I, well, three, typically when <laughs> I encounter continental Africans, I don't have a problem with, you know, any of that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the way I move and the way I act, it's like, we're all family. That's how I, mm -hmm. that's how I operate. Mm -hmm. But when I was in Ghana, i never forget, I was uh, looking for something to take to, to go to work, like a shirt or something like that. Mm -hmm. I go to a shop, and um, there was a sister that was there. She's a little bit older than me. Well, she's more like my auntie's age. And uh, she was just, we started a conversation. She says, well, what's wrong with you African-Americans? I don't understand what you're saying. Y'all lazy, you go to the, you, you're in jail, you have all these babies, all this and that. I'm like, well, we're one, we're not all like that, but where did you get that from? Mm -hmm. Oh, I got it from the media. And that's when I told her, like, okay, cool. So if that's the case, then that means that you got HIV, and you have Ebola, <laughs> the water is, is bad, you know what I'm saying? You There's don't nothing have good here. There's nothing good here at all, we you know? You live in hearts. There you go, Things huts. are hard. You have, walk around naked. There we go. Things are exactly. hard. Exactly, all those things, right? Yeah. And, I'm like, and then that's when she kind of got the point. But I'm like, we don't control the media. Mm -hmm. We don't engage every day because there is an intentional divide. And mm -hmm. a lot of people don't understand what the government has done to, uh, to be able to kind of make that divide even wider, mm -hmm. intentionally not wanting us to be connected. And it started in the, what was that, the 50s and the 60s, I believe, under um, J. Edgar Hoover. Mm -hmm. And how he said, there should not be, we do not want these black people in the United States to be impacted 
by the revolution that's going on in the continent. So now we need to continue to uh, have divisions amongst them and let's plant certain things to where they can't trust each other. It's the same wow. tactic that they used amongst us when it comes to the classes. When you have the poor communities yeah. versus those that may have money and affluent and those type of things, you create divisions, whether it be religion, sex, um, anything old and young, it's the whole Willie Lynch letter, you know, times old. Money. Exactly. Yeah. So all those ways you have to divide and conquer people because you have to understand that we make up three, well, we're the third largest group in the world behind mm -hmm. the Chinese mm -hmm. and the East Indians, mm -hmm. people of African descent. Now, how can people of African descent that are that majority be ruled and dominated by a minority of people? You have to have divide and conquer tactics. Yeah. So that's advanced through all aspects and areas of life. So when I was in Tanzania, um, I was building with a sister who was Lua, mm -hmm. and uh, she, uh, we would, it was me, her, and then it was a Tanzanian brother. <clears throat> and we were just talking about our experiences and everything, chilling at the bar. And um, she said something to the, what did she say? I think she said, oh yeah, you know, he's from the state, he's American and not African or something like that, she said. Mm -hmm. And I said, really? I said, okay, so um, if an African has babies mm -hmm. and those babies are transported to another land and mm -hmm. they reproduce, how are they not still Africans? And then that's when she was like, she didn't, first of all, she didn't answer me. Yeah. I said, okay, well, thank you. You already answered my question. <laughs> but I think that what happens is psychologically we get kind of, caught up in uh, narratives and labels that were not placed on us by us mm -hmm, created by us but it was from from other people mm -hmm. and then the third instance i remember i was at and this one got me hot hot i was <laughs> at the african union and my home in ethiopia here here in georgia oh okay yeah. so um i was at the african union mm -hmm. and i actually was meeting up with my homeboy who's a reacher mm -hmm. one of my closest homeboys and um we went to, we went there. He was already there. When I entered, I was greeted by a sister that was Habisha, so from Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And then there was another sister that, I want to say she was Nigerian. Okay. I, I, I feel like she was West African. So, we, uh, I go in and they offer me food. And I'm like, oh, I'm a vegan. The Ethiopian sister was hospital and mug. She said, oh, don't worry, you know, we got food here. You can have this, this. Now, granted, it still had egg and stuff. Like <laughs> so, I had to tell her, like, I can't eat that. No. So, right. <laughs> But um, the uh, so I don't know what was up with the Nigerian system, but she was like, "Oh, um, well, we have." It's something else she asked. Uh, she said, and I said, "Well, I don't eat that." She's mm -hmm. like, "Oh, you must be African American," and I said, "Excuse me," and, and the way she said it, it was kind of like a negative connotation. So I'm like, "Well, what do you? I don't understand." She says, "Are you?" No, she asked me, "Are you African or African American?" And then that's when I said. I identify as an African in the diaspora, mm -hmm. you know, and at that time I didn't know where I was from. But uh, she asked me, well, do you know exactly where you're from? And I'm like, well, no, but I'm going to research all this and that. Now, granted, if I was oh, someone, no. if I was someone <laughs> who was not uh, well-researched and if I was someone who didn't have a knowledge of self, mm -hmm. then I would have taken that personally, yeah. even though I still did. But uh, <laughs> but I would have been more hostile toward her. You know, yeah. so, uh, so when she said that, uh, I said, well, what's your basis? Why would you say that? She said, because Africans aren't vegan. And I said, really? I said, oh, okay, wow. well. And normally, I don't even talk about my pedigree at all. <laughs> but that day, I just felt the need to flex, right? <laughs> so I said, well, you know, um, I've traveled to several African countries. Mm -hmm. And I've never had a problem with eating wherever I was at. And not only that, <clears throat> I have a couple of good friends of mine who are vegan who happen to be born on the continent or first or second generation if that's what you're saying mm -hmm. and then um i said something else to her then i just walked away and she kept talking and i just kept walking mm -hmm. but um it's instances like that where i know again have knowledge yourself you understand and understand that colonization has really get taken a hold mm -hmm. of our people mm -hmm. on both sides on both sides and it's like in order for us to continue to bridge that gap, one, we have to continue to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. But then two, we also have to take um, accountability for how we may aid and abed to that. You know, mm -hmm. the brother Ali, that's my individual Ali. <laughs> that's my good like, friend. He, yeah, that's my homie. Uh, Ali, he he told me when I first met him, because I met him when Boniface Mwangi came through. Mm -hmm. He was another good friend of mine. He, uh, he told me when, one of the things he said to me when he first met me was like, you know, how do I get into your community? You know, I want some collard greens. I want soul food. I want this or that, right? 
So I just laugh, and I'm like, well, you know, just come. Like, you can just pull up and whatever. And then I realized that me saying that wasn't necessarily as easy for him mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. So that's something like, well, now you know me, so we can get you into these spaces, and I'll invite you. And a perfect thing that I would, I always invited, particularly the Swahili-speaking mm-hmm. brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. um, is Kwanzaa. Yeah. Because when I was talking to Ali about Kwanzaa, mm-hmm. uh, he told me, well, you know, when y'all have uh, Kaumba, I think it is. Kaumba, which means creativity, he was explaining to me that that, that how they use Kaumba is um, meaning God, I think, God's creativity or something like that. Something, he, it was some type of definition that he said. He was like, that's not the proper term. That's not the proper term. Oh, so term. Yeah. That's with Kwanzaa and the words uh-huh, yeah. associated with Kwanzaa. Uh-huh. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. I've been to Kwanzaa events uh-huh. and I... I just never feel it's right for me to correct mm-hmm. the things because, you know, it's spread across the country. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel... But to see, that's the, these are, <laughs> that's the perfect time. And it's not necessarily, you don't think of it as correction. Mm-hmm. You just think of it as engaging in a conversation about the origins of it and then how Swahili is used okay. at like, the proper times. Because if we continue to walk around, it's like... If I see a car coming down the street yeah. and I'm just walking, you're like, well, you know, I don't know him. And, you know, he could just move a jig a little bit, move to the side, you know. If I get smacked by that car, it's like, all right, so you're just going to sit there and <laughs> let me get smacked. So I, under- I definitely understand the reverence okay. part of it. Yeah. But at the same time, this is how we build the bridges because that's something that's so simple yeah. that we can literally, you're at a Kwanzaa event, oh, okay, I like what y'all are doing. Let me. Maybe let me host some Kwanzaa, uh, some Swahili classes because a lot of us are looking for a native language to, yeah, to that's true. you know, for pull to. Yeah. So I mean, like that's an easy introduction to being able to help bridge the gap and something like that. Yeah. So I would say that's a good one. Yeah. 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 So I would just say, um, as it relates to just the tension between the two parties, I think it's a lot of ignorance uh, that plays a part, but also a lot of intention or a lot of colonization and intentionality between the divisions. And we will we need to overcome that colonization because I think it's moved to neocolonization mm-hmm. where now, because, you know, America is a superpower in terms of economic right. uh, superpower, that we have all its products everywhere in Africa. And so we are, as Africans, aspiring just a little bit too much to look like... Mm-hmm be part of <laughs> the U.S., right? Uh, so we kind of tend to forget our own stuff mm-hmm. in in pursuit of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but there is hope in this sense. I was talking um, my last podcast uh, with Dr. Zalaza. He said it's the work of the African diaspora, especially people who've moved from the continent recently um, into these new places that they they can be the bridge between say right now african americans and africa canadians african black canadians and africa like we can be that bridge but we need to learn how to get into the spaces we need to be learn about other cultures african american culture other uh, brazilian uh, culture so that we can be able to actually make a good bridge right i'm so glad you said that because i went to brazil and peru right mm-hmm. And I recently wrote an article about it. So you will be surprised mm-hmm. how much Africanness we are, despite mm-hmm. the fact that we're not on the continent. Like when I went to Salvador mm-hmm. in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, Brazil, out of all those that were kidnapped and brought to the Americas, North and South, mm-hmm. majority of the enslaved Africans went to Brazil. Well, right? Yeah, that's true. So Brazil is two-thirds black, mm-hmm. two-thirds African. So when I was there, <clears throat> Rio is more commercialized. Mm-hmm. But I was building with a sister the other day, and I was telling her my experiences being in Rio and in Salvador. Mm-hmm. And she was blown away because she's like, I had no idea Brazil was so black. I'm like, if you go there, they literally look like us. The only difference is that they speak Portuguese. And especially when I was in Salvador, Salvador probably was, honestly, and I ain't even, I'm not guessing, mm-hmm. Salvador arguably could have been more African than some African place, cities that I've been to on the continent. Really? Yes, because the way in which they are just proud mm-hmm. of their Africanness, the way they practice, and a lot of them practice Candomblé, which is a um, fusion of... Catholicism as well as Ifa, mm-hmm. you know, so like they practice a lot of the traditional spiritual systems, but then also 
just the food, the culture, the dance, capoeira, which is a martial art form that are derived from Congo mm -hmm. and Angola when they brought it over here. Like, it's just so much about Salvador that is so African. It's mm -hmm. like when you go there, you will be blown away. Just wow, that, you know. I'm gonna add that to my travel list. Yeah, you have uh, to. <laughs> you know, one of the things that we don't know mm -hmm. as Africans is when we talk about slavery or, um, the, you know, the involuntary migration of African people to, to, to the Americas, mm -hmm. is we don't know about the South, Afri the South American part. Yeah. We only know of the U.S., mm -hmm. you know, because uh, that's, I mean, that was the biggest part. I don't know. Uh, in terms of history, that's what we are fed, that's what we know. I did not know that Brazil had the majority black people outside of Africa. That's something I got to learn the last one year. Mm -hmm. um, so, I think even our own education systems, I think they need to be, I don't know, someone needs to upgrade them and talk more about where Africans were taken to. Mm -hmm. uh, because then we're able to relate. Like, I, I didn't have to come to the US probably if I wasn't looking for other black people, I could have gone somewhere else. Professor Zaleza, um, he has this book, In Search of the African Diaspora, mm -hmm. is where I got to learn more about um, that there are other black people in other countries. So I think, the, it's education that we do. Let me ask you, because you know you grew up here. Did you know that when you were growing up? Growing up, I knew about slavery. <laughs> I knew about everything after slavery, but I did not know that there were other black people that lived amongst the world. And mm -hmm. I think that what happens is, particularly in the States, but now that I've traveled, I've seen it. Mm -hmm. Education is taught in silos mm -hmm. and it's not taught in conjunction with the rest of world history and it also is taught erroneously. Mm -hmm. It's taught from a very Eurocentric perspective and any time that you say anything that really, and it's not even uplifting mm -hmm. Africa per se, mm -hmm. it's just telling the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, your view, that's kind of viewed as some type of radical mentality as to how it looks but then you have to ask yourself, well who exactly is controlling the education system? Yeah. Because when you go to when you go to Ghana, mm -hmm. when you go to Nigeria, you know, British books and British, is, is Britain's input on the educational system yeah. that you're perpetuating. It's the same with Kenya. Kenya as well. Yeah. Like when you go to Ivory Coast or if you go to Cameroon or some of those type of places, it's the French. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if we don't even control our own education and our own narrative, mm -hmm. you know, then how do you anticipate or expect, like you don't, you do not expect someone who is captive or someone who is um, enslaving people or, you know, having them by the yoke of colonization, mm -hmm. you don't expect them to emancipate them yeah. because then they lose their power. Mm -hmm. So it's on those that are subject to those conditions to free and emancipate themselves and mm -hmm. i think what happens is we're always taught history post-slavery but we're never taught history prior to so even with the diaspora you know a lot of us believe that black people went around the world because of slavery that's not the case like that's a lot the, of people, yeah that's how that thing exactly, we don't know no, that no people yeah. know about the dravidians of india <laughs> yeah. and how they were black mm -hmm. you know no people people don't realize about west papua and how they were the uh, some of the original ones that were from the Madagascar region that traveled to mm -hmm. these islands and these places, and they just been there for thousands of years. People don't realize how old black people are. That's the That's thing. That's true. Like, yeah. People do not know no. we've been here <laughs> for 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 millennia. But we learn we learn more about the Roman civilization more than exactly, anything else. You know, exactly, exactly, and that's like, that's what aids to our miseducation because yeah. if you can't even see yourself, I have I don't think it's a, I have it here, um, but I have a book called uh, World's Great Men of Color, mm -hmm. and it's not, and it's a two volume book by J. A. Rogers, so it's not specific to men, mm -hmm. but it does talk about black men, and then I think they may have some. They may have some indigenous people there in there too, but it basically chronicles how and highlights mm -hmm. great melanated people around the world and how and how they were great prior to mm -hmm. slavery. So it's like you talk about Hannibal Barca that traveled up to Italy and conquered the Romans and did that. He came from Carthage, which is northern Tunisia. You know, when you talk about uh, what's her name, Queen Candace from um, Ethiopia and mm -hmm. how she was on the on the elephants slaying folks, you know, and how women ruled 
in Africa yeah. prior to yeah. this modern time. So yeah. it's like now when you hear about women running for president and stuff, and then African people are so shocked. I'm like, yo, if you knew your history, then you would know that this isn't new. That is true. I actually I don't know why they get shocked because it is in our history books. At least I learned that in primary school, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it is in our history books, but I think white supremacy has ruled so much that we've forgotten or we don't even appreciate our exactly. history, right? Exactly. Uh, and try to like use it uh, to grow and not like always look to the worst for solutions. Exactly. Yeah. And, but you have to understand that we've been made to believe that because I do have a book called um, King Leopold's Ghost. Mm -hmm. For those who are listening, that is an awesome book. It's going to be heart-wrenching, but it tells the unabated truth about what happened in Congo. I will, I will post the link to the book, uh, the description of the podcast. Okay. okay. And um, it talks about the history of Congo and how King Leopold came in, what they, what they did in Congo, mm -hmm. and why Congo is the way that it is today. today. And, you know, just from that, how they would intentionally erase your history and your culture and then supplant their own in there. So much so, I saw an interview recently from a brother who was Congolese that literally there was a statue of King Leopold. And King Leopold, for those who would kind of get, uh, would be like the Hitler to the Jews. So King Leopold wow. is, um, you know, they had this statue of King Leopold, and this this brother was just praising this man. And it was like, oh my God, he brought us civilization and all this and that. And I'm like, but then I can't necessarily get mad at him because yeah. he doesn't know the history about Congo. Yeah. So it's just like Arthur Rhodes, uh, what was it, Cecil Rhodes? Uh, Cecil Rhodes. In South Africa, the Rose, uh, the Rose, um, and the Rhodesia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rhodes. So that's what that's what Zimbabwe was named after. Zambia mm -hmm. was named after. Mm -hmm. And then you know the what they were doing in South Africa. But they have a whole scholarship named after this the, man, and yeah. people are actually wanting to and scratching to be a part of that. Yeah. And it's like because you don't know your history, you don't even realize that you're pra you're praising these people who who made your ancestors suffer and die an early death and a slow death and sometimes a fast death so it's like until we really have a knowledge of self and take control so what i'm hopeful about is we have a ton of scholars right now um who have moved to the to africa and they talk about these things but i just still feel like it's not loud enough mm -hmm. to get into the media in africa because mm -hmm. i think uh, we cannot control the Western media at all, mm -hmm. but I think we need to start controlling our own, right? Sure. But being funded by Western countries does not help because uh, they also control the education systems and you know, things like that. But I, I just feel like we can find a way to teach our own history in Africa because I think that then will empower people to start demanding better for themselves mm -hmm. uh, instead of following whatever we're being ordered to say, things like that, <laughs> you know. I have a, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. um, so we've agreed that the African diaspora, especially the recent migrants, are the key to this bridge. You know, uh, what, do you, what would you suggest like, that we can do uh, to make these bridges between people in the continent right now and people outside of Africa. I think that it's uh, important for those that are migrating into this particular country, the United States, mm -hmm. to really get a understanding of the intricacies and the history that has happened here. Mm -hmm. um, and also study for themselves because again a lot of people who come mm -hmm. may come with decorated degrees or they may come for education but they still are colonized yeah you know so um being able to decolonize yourself mm -hmm. first and get a knowledge yourself and understanding of where you're from these type of things and then come into the communities that are here and be one of a like open mind and then also kind of having a bit of empathy mm -hmm. as to the plight that happened because a lot of times because you do not understand the history that it comes here mm -hmm. you have a lot that come that may say i don't understand why they aren't doing abc you've been here for several centuries mm -hmm. and do not understand again educational dilapidation housing discrimination mm -hmm. uh workforce you know like it's this isn't just something that we are complaining about. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens oftentimes is because 
you come here to a majority white country, mm-hmm. you know, and you see these people, it's like, well, I don't understand because I've been to a place, or I'm from a place that doesn't have much of any, I could be from a region that may not have much of all of what you have, mm-hmm. but I still was able to make it and do these things, but then there's an aspect of that that is not realized in the sense of, one, it's an all-black country, so it's a different viewpoint that you have all together. Yeah, yeah. And then, two, you are essentially being oppressed by someone who's a puppet that looks like you. So, you know, you don't oh. even control the... You don't control the resources there. You're used to it being exploited, and then you're fed things to show you that your own existence was really funded by someone who doesn't look like you. So if you look at it, if you take yourself out of the dynamic, out of the situation, mm-hmm. and look at it as an outsider looking in, you have the exact same colonization. The only distinction is that your demographic makeup may be different. And not only that, mm-hmm. African people here in the United States had their language, their culture, knowledge itself stripped away from them. Our brothers and sisters on the continent, mm-hmm. fortunately, mm-hmm. were able to retain a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So you can come into the state speaking Swahili. Mm-hmm. As any black person, like a random black person on the street, if they know any language outside of English, mm-hmm. that's not a colonized language. You see what the answer is. Do they know their mother tongue? Can anybody speak Wolof? Can anybody speak Yoruba? Can anybody speak a, tr- a tree? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have those ties. We don't even dream in our native languages. Wow, that's that's powerful because I call it factory settings. When I'm mad or when I don't know what else to say in English, I literally revert in my head to my native language, right? Because that's fundamentally how I can express myself mm-hmm. to myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I even tell somebody this, I have to translate back to English <laughs> in and, my head. And that's so powerful because yeah. it's like you, and, and think about it, English language, and I forgot who I was talking to about this, mm-hmm. but the English language, let's just take how we relate to women, mm-hmm. for instance, right? Mm-hmm. The English language has so many derogatory terms for a woman, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Whereas if you look at say a traditional African language mm-hmm. that has not been um, interpolated with some other type of European language, mm-hmm. you may find something like, oh, silly girl, foolish girl, um, you know, uh, maybe prostitute, something like that, but it's not as derogatory as you would in English, you see? Mm-hmm. So it's like when you even look at the etymology of certain languages and how they view or depict their women, mm-hmm. African people generally prior to colonization didn't oppress women like that because once again, mm-hmm. you had the civilizations yeah. and that were ran. So, you know, all of that, I would say, to get back to your point, uh, or your question rather, I think you have to take all of that into account so when you're coming into this country mm-hmm. and you're interacting and engaging with us that are here, mm-hmm. you have to have that in the forefront of your mind and be willing and have the patience to deal with those yeah. that may not have the education or the, the knowledge of self to be able to see, you know, that you are my sister yeah. and not my enemy. Yeah. I think the key word you just said that is patience. Because mm-hmm. going back uh, to my um, experience in college, I could have been... Because it became a war inside of me towards this guy. I don't even remember his name, unfortunately. Um, it was like, I, I'm going to show you I'm smart. You know, I'm going to show you I know English. And I might speak different from you, but I'm going to show you. But I'm thinking, I mean, I was young then. I don't think I, you could have talked to me about anything else. But looking back, I could have been more gracious, more patience to reach out and say, okay, I'd like to know more about your culture. Mm-hmm. Um, which spaces can I go into right now? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna ask you this: whether the DMV, let's start with the DMV area, okay. and hopefully that replicates anywhere people are going to listen to this from. Mm-hmm. Um, which which spaces as an African can I walk into? Um, not feel like I don't belong mm-hmm. um, and I can come in and out as much as I want because when, intru- when introducing yourself into a new culture you kind of have to have a gatekeeper right? right and if you don't have a gatekeeper you want a space that you can come in and out to the level of your comfort mm-hmm. so do you have an idea like you can yes actually okay. I do <laughs> um, so I'm a part of couple of organizations, but one I'm the director called the Movement for Black Power. Mm-hmm. We're a very Pan-African organization, mm-hmm. so I've uh, invited Ali and some of my other brothers and sisters to our meetings and our events mm-hmm. that we have because we're very open to that. 
and we don't view you as on the opposite side of a V. Okay. Again, we view ourselves as African people. So mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't matter where you are, you can come. Mm-hmm. Um, you have an organization called the UNIA, mm-hmm. which is very Pan-African. Okay. You have um, the National Black United Front, NBUF, mm-hmm. D.C., mm-hmm. Um, very Pan-African. Mm-hmm. Um, any, I would say any spaces that are Pan-African in nature mm-hmm. are pretty dope to be a part of because you're not going to get that hostility of and even and i'll speak as an attorney Mm -hmm. even in the the petty bourgeoisie organizations you know what i'm saying you get a lot of you may get some of that yeah it's like that hostility like um or that friction of well we can uh, allow you in Mm -hmm. but we're all chasing essentially like this americanism Mm -hmm. so if you conform to that, uh-huh. then we will accept you. Uh-huh. But also, it can be, and there it might I say, a bit fetishizing too, uh-huh. because it's like okay, you may be deemed as someone who is not the native black here, uh-huh. so you are still in a different category of class. Whereas if you come into a Pan African um, community, uh-huh. Pan African organization uh-huh. uh, environment. You will be, I find, most welcome. Okay. Because we're the because those communities typically are the ones that want to learn Swahili, mm-hmm. learn Yoruba, learn indigenous spiritual systems, mm-hmm. learn some of those things that you may be able to impart on us. And in addition to that, mm-hmm. we in turn would be able to show you, okay, this is how you do A, this is how you do B, this is where you need to go. There's a brother, and I'll finish with this, there's a brother who, um, David, mm-hmm. um, he is... Also, I believe he's Lord, because I, I, I'm attempting to get away from saying, because it's like a, it's, it's a, I want to refer to the country, but then I know that those uh, borders are not, those colonial borders, mm-hmm. so it's like, I attempt to respect the fact that it's ethnic groups, but at the same time, I don't like to be divisive with it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can just remain with the country borders, yeah, so, so let's don't give say, it to us. Let's just say... Uh, <laughs> Kenya, for instance, he's yeah. from Kenya. Yeah. But um, I remember building with him, mm-hmm. and we're still working together. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I noticed that continental Africans that come here have access to that we may not mm-hmm. is the fact of getting assistance from the embassies and certain government grants and stuff like that, mm-hmm. because whether it be sponsored by your own, your country or you know just having access to it uh, or preference over us, mm-hmm. if we work together, mm-hmm. then we can literally say, all right, well, if you all have access to the capital, mm-hmm. you get with a pan you get with an organization like InBuff that's literally doing work on the ground mm-hmm. to enhance and help our people's conditions no matter what you look like, so long as you're black, you're good. Mm-hmm. You know, then we will be able to grow and build and institutionalize this organization yeah. to where we can start teaching Pan African curriculums. There are schools, Ujima and Ujima I believe, mm-hmm. that are here that are African centered. So you want to find a place to send your child that doesn't teach. You don't have to worry about if your child is going to be subjected to white supremacy in this school mm-hmm. or if he's going to be bullied or if he's going to be picked on or whatever that may be. Send them to these schools because they're teaching yeah. the Pan-African curriculum that you need. So being Do we have those it, schools right now? Yeah. Where? Ujima. Um, Ujima, that's off of 9th Street, I believe. In D.C.? In D.C. Oh, wow. Yeah, I believe it's in D.C. Um, Baba Zulu is over there. Um... Yeah, he's the he he's the founder of the and it's been in existence. Interesting. I'm gonna look years. into that. Yeah. And I'm gonna put that uh as a description. People yeah, can know more about their schools. Absolutely. But there is is so you have those all across the nation, but mm-hmm. specifically in this area, you have a couple of schools that are Pan African centered. The Congress Heights Arts Center, if I'm not mistaken. They, I don't think it's a school, mm-hmm. but they do do a lot of Pan African activities and uh uh yeah, activities. Yeah. So that's another avenue that you could go to. Interesting. You know? So this is what needs to. This is the the conversation that needs to be had. And might I suggest, yes, since yeah. you have a podcast, because uh-huh. this is an idea I had uh-huh. that I wanted to do, you can do something like a teen summit, where you literally. My vision was to literally have continental Africans and Africans that are first and second generation uh-huh. to those Africans that send the diaspora, whether they're from the United States or Brazil or in the the Caribbean Um, and we get together in a a series of talks we have like an open we'll be in a room 
well, post corona. But we'll be, you know, in the in <laughs> area. That's key to space, point out. Right? That's very key. Yeah, space to point to, to be. And then we literally have uh, unfiltered, mm-hmm. unadulterated conversation. Like, what are your, what are your, what do you say? When your doors are closed, do you really think of us as a cottage? Do we really think of oh all as booty, goodness. Um, that's, booty scratches? That's you know a saying? good, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's a great idea. And that's idea. how it starts because you have to remove, in order for us to solve, in order for you to heal yourself from a disease, mm-hmm. you have to acknowledge that the disease exists. It's, yeah. So that's the one thing that we've been doing for so many years is acting as though it doesn't exist. That's well, true. now we need to just rip those band-aids off and be like, let's heal it. Let's talk about yeah. it. Yeah. We, wow, that's amazing. And actually, right now, although I don't know who they focus on, the African Union Youth mm-hmm. Diaspora, they do have something going on, but I think it focuses more on youth who have direct connections to Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but this idea of saying bring youth or just people from of African descent from wherever they are in the world and have these conversations. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. I'm, I'm gonna look into it. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna look into it. Yeah, tell me about you growing up. Where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about your family. Um, who, who influenced you growing up? Mm-hmm. Who, who did you aspire to be? I wanted to be a pilot because my uncle was a pilot uh-huh. in the Kenyan Air Force. Nice. I know. Uh, until I grew up and I realized to be in the Air Force, I have to join the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And there's something little thing called boot camp. <laughs> Once I got to know about it, I was like, no, I am, I am good. I don't I'm need good. that. <laughs> <I'm> good. <laughs> I'm good. So tell me, yeah, where did you grow up? And um, tell me about your family. Sure. So I grew up in Temple Hills. Uh, born and raised, well, not born, but raised there. Temple Hills. Uh, Temple Hills, Maryland. So okay. that's in PG County, mm-hmm. Prince George's County. Mm-hmm. This is a suburb of DC for mm-hmm. those who may not know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my my family was middle class, if you want to call it that. My mm-hmm. father is from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. My mother's from uh, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I didn't grow up in a Pan African household. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up uh, really just aspiring to be a part of the petty bourgeois. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the whole pan Af- I mean, I talked about it earlier, but like the whole Pan African transition really occurred because I always wanted to. Since I was about four or five years old, mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be a lawyer mm-hmm. because I saw um, wow. when I was growing up, Johnny Cochran was was it. Mm-hmm. So and they had the O.J. Simpson trial at that time. Mm-hmm. So I would see him and that. So I would go to school doing career day and have like a little briefcase and a suit. <laughs> you know, and my parents had to remind me that I did that. But I do remember. Um, when I was about, when I was in second grade, so I had to been seven, uh, there were some kids that would come to our school mm-hmm. that were disabled. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that I would always volunteer to assist them. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that time, you know, I've always been an advocate for those who did not have a voice and for those that were um, not in a position of power mm-hmm. to be able to say, like, hey, this is, you know, what. Um, these people want Mm -hmm. and this is what we need to do Mm -hmm. and it just so happened that and the reason I have so much fervor in what I do now is because I found exactly what my purpose is Mm -hmm. and I I know again I always am growing with knowledge my name means student so I'm always learning but you know I have a, a, a good sense of self and because of that that's why I'm able to be unapologetic in my stance of being African Mm -hmm. and uh, just continuing to help people out. So when I was younger, it was people who were disabled. Now that I'm older and that I know it's still people who are disabled, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I have a very African tint Mm -hmm. to what I do. And I know that within the society as it exists now, a lot of our people aren't really getting the needed services or attention, yeah. you know, so yeah. that's why I'm very keen on that. But, you know, my family um, is in support of what I do. Mm-hmm. Being a lawyer, it's funny. Uh, when I was in school, when I came back from South Africa, mm-hmm. I remember going to my professor, Professor Amana, and I told her, I said, you know, I'm kind of scared. And she's like, why? I said, because I think I like filming and I like being in it. And I can see how the media impacts us more and then actually law, mm-hmm. you know, because it transcends. So, um, you know, she put me in contact with some people and I uh, helped to flesh out my ideas. But 
from that point, I hit a, a ceiling I felt, I felt because I'm like, I'm a lawyer, I'm in school, well, I'm in school, law student, but I realized that the legal profession is only about 5% of us, if not less than that. Mm -hmm. And not only that, I'm still upholding the system of racism and white supremacy. I mean, I could be completely honest with it. Mm -hmm. Like, being a lawyer isn't necessarily liberating the people because you're still adhering to it, but I, my ideology was while I'm in the profession, mm -hmm. I still have an opportunity to kind of bring my people out of certain conditions and situations mm -hmm. and assist them while this system exists, mm -hmm. you know, so I won't waste my degree. But at the same time, mm -hmm. our people are people with status and clout. <laughs> so it's like, because I have a couple letters at the end of my name now, mm -hmm. you know, it gives me more, it gives my words more credence. It gives me more respectability. Yeah. So I use that and parlay that to be able to, you know, for instance, mentor the youth. They'd see a lawyer talking like I do or having locks and, you know, just I know. They're like, oh, my God, you look. I was at the, I was sitting on the uh, <laughs> steps in Baltimore. Never forget this. And I was organizing in grassroots, dressed down. And this little boy came up to me. He was like, um, yes, you want a hot dog? And I had to explain to him what the vegan was and why I couldn't <laughs> eat that. So, <laughs> so, so then somehow we got on being an attorney. He was like, wait, you a lawyer? I'm like, yeah. He's like, but you here, though? I'm like, yeah. No, no, but you here though, and I was on the west side of Baltimore in the hood. So the, I'm like, yeah, we organized here. I'm, yeah, I'm here. Yeah. And um, but they are not used to seeing that. Oh. So it's like you know when you're not used to seeing that, and you don't grow up in a household that produces engineers, doctors, lawyers, people who are, have some type of professional type of cut to them. Yeah. And maybe they're just white workers. collar profession. Yeah, white collar profession, yeah. and people that actually want to so you so you have the white collar professions mm -hmm. and then you couple that with revolutionary talk you don't see that yeah you know what i'm saying yeah. so it's like even if you did grow up in an environment in which you produced the professional part of it mm -hmm. you don't have any ties to your community or that's kind of capped so it's like you can do certain things you can do things but to a certain extent because you still in a way, shape, or form, are advanced in your oppression. Yeah. So until you come to the realization of that, but being able to be a lawyer kind of affords me an opportunity to say, "Hey, I am a lawyer. This is what I'm doing. But mm -hmm. also, I'm a poet. Also, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Also, I'm an activist. So like, I don't just talk about this stuff and act as though I'm detached from my community. Yeah. And actually, in the trenches fighting. Yeah. You know. So. That's amazing. That is amazing. Now, I know you do run a clinic uh, called Know Your Rights. Yeah, I know what they so call it, clinic or community uh, program. Workshops. Some okay. workshops. Okay, yeah. workshops, yes. Um, tell me more about that. And so, how can people participate, at least in the DMV area? Sure, yeah. thank you. Um, the, workshop, the Know Your Rights workshop, uh, mm -hmm. through the Movement for Black Power, and then any other aspects, because I also am the Social Justice Chair mm -hmm. of the Washington Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Mm -hmm. So um, the, what we wanted to do, or what I wanted to do through all of this, is to be able to make law accessible to our people. Mm -hmm. And being able to understand what your rights are as it, as it relates to police encounters, yeah. what your rights are as it relates to selling your house, mm -hmm. you know, just what you're, just knowing your rights generally, mm -hmm. whatever you may fall on the spectrum of the education or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, so naturally, once I got my degree, I'm like, all right, bet. That's what I want to do. So I want to host these workshops to be able to talk about these things, to, to produce and give people tangible things. So after we leave this conversation, you know mm -hmm. that when you walk down the street and the officer stops you mm -hmm. and you ask him, what crime do you suspect me of committing? And he says nothing, then you can walk away. A lot of you don't know that. Or when, you know, you are uh, asked questions yeah. by the officer and then you are in custody that you can terminate the questions by asking for your lawyer because they're not supposed to talk to you. Yeah. That. You know, so those tangible things and education law, which is what I practice. Yeah. Being able to know your rights as a student, not getting suspended or expelled or, you know, if you're a child, if you have a child that has disabilities, mm -hmm. knowing that your child has to, or the school has to adhere to the individualized education program yeah. plan, yeah. the IEP. So, you know, okay, is your child receiving a laptop during this time? You know, is your child receiving the occupational therapy that he needs or that she needs? Yeah. You know, knowing those type of rights. You know, if if it's if it pertains to family law, yeah, knowing your rights as it relates to your child, and you know custody rights and those type of things. So being able to host and throw clinics like that 
just to impact and grow the education of our people so that they know when you are out here in these streets, you know exactly how to move and how to operate. Because I look at this as a war, you know, and in a war, yeah. you'd always come prepared. You never show up to a gunfight with a knife. With a knife, that's you know true, yeah. I mean, a knife is dangerous, don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. it's slow. But yeah, so I have, um, you know, my website, uh, www.thesabrafirm.com mm -hmm. and then also you know Facebook my name Talib Sabra the Instagram is the Sabra Firm and my name Talib underscore S mm -hmm. so I mean all those platforms yeah. you know you can reach me at and we can do the work but I have a, right now I have a whole office full of coats and um, like shirts and pants and stuff because we were supposed to be giving this away every month prior to COVID like yeah. every month for people who may be in need so like this is stuff that is not these are things that aren't that wouldn't be classified quote unquote as sexy. Yeah. But at the same time, these are necessary things because as an organizer I was always told that you have to provide the basics of food, clothing and shelter for our people. Because they're true. not gonna listen to you. Yeah. They're not going to adhere to If you don't say, provide those. Exactly. That's true. Yeah. I'm an organizer as well. So mm -hmm. uh that I know you have to go beyond what you're organizing for exactly. for people to you know buy into the message exactly. so we do it through the movement for black power we mm -hmm. do it through the national black united front those are the two main ones i do this mm -hmm. do and then also the washington bar association okay. and lawyers division so upcoming we have a um event with the uh, washington bar association that deals in education so mm -hmm. understanding your rights going back to school under COVID 19 you know and with would kids are wow. afforded and those type of things right yeah so that's coming up in September. who would you be targeting for that the, the parents, and the, parents, the parents and, students. and the students yeah parents and students and particularly parents and students that are from low income, income. areas yeah you know um and yeah just to get the knowledge that you need to be able to kind of um I don't think you even need to target um, low-income areas, honestly, because I know a ton of Africans who, who are not low-income. Okay. Who don't know anything you're talking about right now. Well, bring them here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, just people who have kids, honestly. Yeah. Just people who have kids. Like, yeah. that would be the target uh, audience. Because, again, our workshop, the workshops that we do mm -hmm. is not necessarily limited to only people who can't afford stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that we need to also destroy the narrative of our people just broken hopeless. Yeah. Because that's not the case. That's, like, that's not we, the case. We're not a monolith, so we know that our people have money. As a matter of fact, as we're doing this recording right now, we're in the large, what is it, the richest black county in America. That's what I read the other day. Yeah. So it's like, our people got some bread. <laughs> you know? So we don't have to act like everybody's just out here desolate. Yeah. You know? So yeah. That's that's amazing. So the Sabo Farm in Greenback, Maryland. Yes. Um, and if you guys need a lawyer, um, you have one. Uh, yes. I will link his contact information uh, on the podcast website. Um, and yeah, if you want to learn more about know your rights, uh, civil rights, if you want representation. Are you specific about what you represent? So I do uh, education law, mm -hmm. civil rights and human rights, personal mm -hmm. injury. And I do some family law too. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you had that. Make sure you um, contact him if you need a lawyer. We're supporting black, you know, black people, yeah. black businesses. Uh, because, they, you know, it's for me, I believe you, I mean, I can go to any lawyer, don't get me wrong, but I need a lawyer I can connect with. Exactly. So that's very important. Exactly. I can have a lawyer pay a ton of money, but if you don't connect with them, they're not going to fight for you. Teach. <laughs> Teach. As, as, as someone would if they connected with you. And I've you seen know? it too. Yeah. I literally have seen it where, you know, they would just say, oh, you have some lawyers that literally will not meet their client until the day of trial. And they would show up and like, oh, I said, you ready? You gonna take this plea? In a criminal uh, situation, but it's like for me, nah. You have to be able to connect. And, yeah. And right, right now, to this ver this very moment, I literally before this interview, mm -hmm. I was going over one of my cases, and it was a father who lost his uh, who lost custody of his son temporarily. Mm -hmm. So we're literally in a fight with the Department of Social Services to get the son back. So, like, you know, being able to know, okay, these are your circumstances, these are your conditions, and mm -hmm. I can attest to I'm not looking at you in the judgment capacity. Yeah. I literally can speak to you in yeah. a manner in which you understand, and I'm not speaking over your head. 
I know your background and yeah. I'm familiar with that. So it's like you just just that connectivity. And then also you circulate the black dollar. In the black community. Exactly. Uh, if you can. If you can. Uh, so thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. Um, thank you. I really do hope that uh, people are going to listen. They're going to learn something. Uh, that there is hope we can connect uh, amongst the African diaspora. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on Thank to you. you. Thank you. There we go. There we go. Working. I'm gonna move on to you. amongst the African diaspora. We can connect, um, and the divisions that have been created for us to divide us, uh, we need to find a way to overcome them. But then is reclaiming how we identify ourselves as. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.